Women have played a significant role in our society and culture through time. So let's take a look at the history from the women's side. I'm your host, Brittany, and welcome to Her Story Sessions. We're continuing with adventuring women. There were just too many not content to stay home, and I needed to cover more of them. So let's start another session on these adventurers. I'm starting this time with a woman that literally conquered mountains. Annie Smith Peck was an American mountaineer, suffragist, and speaker. She lectured all over the world and wrote four books. Annie was born in Providence, New Hampshire in October 1850, the youngest of five children. The one sister she had died in infancy, so she grew up with only brothers. Her three older brothers instilled a sense of competitiveness in her when she was very young, and she developed quite a bit of physical strength and endurance because of this. She graduated from Rhode Island Normal School, a prep school for teachers, and now named Rhode Island College in 1872. She briefly taught Latin at Providence High School, but really wanted to go to Brown University like her father and her brothers. She was the first woman to submit an application to the university, but President Ezekiel Robinson sent her a curt rejection. He wrote to her saying, Women are not encouraged to seek higher education, according to biographer Hannah Kimberly. In her personal notes, Peck wrote that she thought she had made out so good a case so as to move their stony hearts. But it didn't matter. According to them, she was a woman and didn't belong there. But the University of Michigan had just opened up to women, and so she went there and got an undergraduate and a master's degree in classic languages and graduated with honors. She then taught Latin and speech for two years at Purdue University. Not satisfied with her schooling just yet, she went to Europe, first to Germany, then was the first woman admitted to the American School of Classical Studies in Athens, Greece. While traveling from Germany to Greece, she saw the Matterhorn in the Alps, and this is where she got interested in climbing. She climbed to the summit of Cape Misenum in Italy, a small mountain passes in Switzerland, including the 10,000-foot Theodol Pass, and Mount Hymetus and Penticus in Greece. After coming back to the U.S. and some practice runs, she managed to climb the 14,380-foot Mount Shasta in California in 1888. When she wasn't climbing, she was a professor at Smith College and Purdue University. She did this for 11 years until 1892 when she quit when she realized she was making less than her male counterparts and she could make more by touring and giving lectures on Greek antiquity. This better financed her expeditions to Europe and Central and South America. In 1895, she returned to climb Mount Matterhorn. She immediately became infamous for this climb because of the fact that she wore pants while climbing. It became a big deal in the press because this was simply not done. Some women had even been arrested for wearing pants in public, which was considered an affront to men's attire. After this climb, she switched to lecturing about climbing, which drew more people. She also set about new climbing goals, planning to climb mountains that had not been climbed by women before. She did this in 1897 when she went to Mexico and climbed Mount Popocatépetl and Mount Orizaba. Mount Orizaba, at 18,406 feet, is where she set the altitude record for women in the Western Hemisphere. After that, she aimed to climb another one, one that no one, man or woman, had ever been able to climb before. She wanted to climb Mount Hascaron in Peru, which would make her the first American to do so and hold the record for the highest altitude held by an American. 
It took multiple attempts, but in 1908, when she was 58 years old, she finally climbed the North Peak. Three years later, when she was 61, she climbed Mount Corapuna in Peru and placed a Votes for Women banner at the summit. She was a suffragist, of course, and very political. Back in New York, she was the president of the Joan of Arc Suffrage League. Known for her speaking skills, she also campaigned for several politicians, one of which was Woodrow Wilson in 1912. She made a seven-month trip around South America in 1929 and 1930, mostly by airplane, to demonstrate the ease and safety of commercial airline travel, and this was the longest trip made by air by North American at the time. Once home again, she wrote Flying Over South America, 20,000 Miles by Air. She continued climbing as she got older, and her final climb was Mount Madison in New Hampshire when she was 82. She died in 1935 when she was 84, and on her grave, a tribute by the New York Times editor-in-chief John H. Finley was inscribed. It reads, You have brought uncommon glory to women of all time. Our next adventurer not only climbed mountains too, but also helped establish a new country, among other things. Her name was Gertrude Bell. She was born to a wealthy English family in July of 1868 in Washington New Hall, now called Dame Margaret Hall. Her family's wealth meant a good education for her and enabled her to travel. She was an intelligent, energetic child with a desire to explore. Her grandfather was a member of Parliament, and through him she was exposed to international matters which piqued her curiosity of the world, and most likely her involvement in international politics later in life probably stems from this too. Her mother died in childbirth when she was just three, which led to a close relationship with her father, a progressive capitalist, a mill owner who made sure his workers were well paid and cared for. She consulted with him on political matters throughout her life. Her father remarried when Gertrude was seven, and her stepmother was Florence Bell, a playwright and author of children's stories. She instilled concepts of duty and decorum in Gertrude and contributed to her intellectual development. Her stepmother may have influenced her later stance of promoting the education of Iraqi women. When she was 16, she began attending Queen's College in London, then went to Lady Margaret Hall, a women's college at Oxford. She graduated there with high honors in the study of history, the first woman to do so. The first time she traveled was in 1892 to visit her uncle, the British ambassador to Tehran in Persia. She described this trip in her book Persian Pictures, which was published in 1894. She spent the next several years traveling, mountaineering in Switzerland, and developed a passion for archaeology and language. Over time, she became fluent in Arabic, Persian, French, and German, and also spoke Italian and Ottoman languages. In 1899, she went to study Arabic in Jerusalem, and she also went to Palestine and Syria, and in 1900 went to Lebanon where she met the Druze. She also went to Palmyra, which she described as a white skeleton of a town standing knee-deep in the blown sand. She would end up crossing Arabia six times over the next 12 years. Interspersed in her Middle East trips, she climbed mountains. She first started in 1897 on a family holiday in La Grave, France, and in 1899 climbed the Maige and the Le Ukraine in the French region of the Alps, and several in the Swiss Alps the following year, and had 10 new paths or the first ascents there. Gertrude Spritzo was named for her after she was the first to ascend to its peak in 1901. When she tried to climb Fenarstarharn the next year, she and her guides got stuck when a blizzard struck. They spent nearly 50 hours hanging onto ropes on a cliff face before they were able to make it down back to a local village. Gertrude nearly lost her life, but in the end only had frostbite on her hands and feet, which she recovered from and continued climbing again 
this time scaling the Matterhorn in 1904. Gertrude made her first extended trip to the Middle East in 1905, traveling through Syria, Cilicia, and Turkey. She was alone, except for Arab servants traveling with her, and stayed with upper class when her family was able to arrange introductions, but slept in tents when necessary. In Alexandretta in southern Turkey, she met Fatah, who became her servant and stayed with her the rest of her life. She became interested in archaeology while visiting ruins on her trip. She wrote about the whole trip in Syria, the Desert, and the Sone, which was published in 1907. She came back to Asia Minor the same year, this time with archaeologist Sir William Ramsey to excavate early Christian churches. Their excavations in Binbir Kilisi were published in 1001 churches. They also discovered a field of ruins in northern Syria on the east bank of the upper course of the Euphrates, which was probably the Beersheba in Ptolemy's list of city names. In 1909, she crossed through the Euphrates River Valley, visiting several places along the way. In Karshamish, she consulted with two archaeologists at the site, one being T.E. Lawrence. She completed her most arduous journey across Arabia in 1913. She went to Damascus to Hail, back across the Arabian Peninsula to Baghdad, and finally back to Damascus, an 1,800-mile trip. She was only the second foreign woman to have been in Hail at the time, but her timing was bad. The city was politically volatile at the time, and she ended up being held there for 11 days before being able to leave. She learned a lot about the deserts and ruins in northern Arabia on this trip. When World War I broke out, Gertrude requested a posting in the Middle East with the British Army, but was originally denied, so she volunteered with the Red Cross in France until she was asked by British intelligence to get soldiers through the desert. In 1915, she was summoned to Cairo to join the newly forming Arab Bureau. Here she met T.E. Lawrence again, and they worked together to help encourage the Arab tribes to revolt against the Ottoman Empire. She was transferred to Basra in 1916 to advise Chief Political Officer Percy Cox, as she was the person that best knew the area. She also drew maps for the British Army and became the only woman political officer in the British forces and received the title of Liaison Officer, correspondent to Cairo. British troops took Baghdad in March of 1917, and after that, Gertrude was summoned there and given the title Oriental Secretary. As the Ottoman Empire was dismantled at the end of the war, she was assigned to analyze the situation in Mesopotamia, and she had strong ideas about what leadership was needed in the new country of Iraq due to her familiarity with the region and the relationships to the local tribes. In 1920, Percy Cox returned to Baghdad and asked her to continue her role as Oriental Secretary, acting as a liaison between the new Arab government. She essentially became the mediator between them and the British officials, and often had to mediate between groups within the new nation itself. Keeping them united was essential to political stability, and it became important to establish a new national identity for these people. The Cairo Conference of 1921 was held to determine the political and geographic structure of the region, and Gertrude gave significant input to these discussions. Faisal bin Hussein was established as the first king of Iraq, and Gertrude became an advisor to him on local inquiries, and she supervised the selection of appointees for the cabin and other government positions. The Arabs referred to her as Al-Qutan, which loosely means respected lady in Arabic, and queen in Persian. She also became the king's confidant, and he helped her establish the Iraqi Archaeological Museum for her own collection and the British School of Archaeology in Iraq. The stress of her position, bouts of malaria, and recurring bronchitis from heavy smoking throughout the years began to take a toll on her health, 
and it was not easy working with the new king. About it, she said, You may rely upon one thing. I'll never engage in creating kings again. It's too great a strain. Today, some historians argue that the present-day problems in Iraq stem from the political boundaries Gertrude helped establish to create the national borders. But even her reports at the time indicate there would be problems in the future, but her and her colleagues didn't believe there were any permanent solutions for uniting this part of the world. She lobbied for the Sunni control over the Shia majority, and this set a path for the dictatorship that would later take over. She also did not oppose the Kurds being divided up between three different countries, and this led to the oppression of them in all three countries. Gertrude briefly returned to Britain in 1925, but there she had family problems and ongoing health issues. She returned to Baghdad, where in 1926 she died of a sleeping pill overdose. Whether this was intentional or accidental is unknown. Her funeral was a major event, with the Iraqi king and several British officials attending along with the large crowds, and she was buried in the British cemetery in Baghdad's Bab al-Sharji district. Freya Stark had a somewhat similar path in life, although she traveled more in the southern area of the Middle East than Gertrude did, and she also worked with the British during the war. She was born in Paris while her parents were studying art, but spent most of her childhood in northern Italy, where her father's friend had houses in a solo and her grandmother lived in Genoa. For her ninth birthday, she got the book A Thousand and One Nights and became fascinated with the area. She was sickly a lot as a child, and reading became an outlet for her. She enjoyed reading French and taught herself Latin. In 1912, she began at Bedford College in London, but when World War I broke out, she left to volunteer as a nurse in the war, and for a short time, she worked as a censor for the international correspondence in London. After the war, her father gave her a small estate in Mortala on the Riviera, and she farmed grapes, vegetables, and flowers there. She would go to London to the School of Oriental Studies regularly to take courses on Arabic language and developed a desire to go to the Middle East to study language there. She even unsuccessfully applied to be a governess for the Iraqi princesses at the Baghdad court. Finally, in 1927, already in her mid-30s, she got to go to Lebanon. Then from there, went to Damascus, where she took more Arabic courses and would mingle with the local people, something that was frowned upon by the colonial social circles. While there, she took a secret trip to the Druze, which were then in an area not controlled by the English and was dangerous, and travel there was not allowed. She traveled with another Englishwoman, going by night and sticking to back roads. She traveled through the Middle East for seven months before returning to London, where she took drawing classes so she could make maps in the future. In 1929, she went back to Damascus, then went to Baghdad, where she became associated with British diplomats and officials, as well as the locals again. She also went on desert excursions to visit the Bedouins with only Iraqi nationals, once again going against colonial principles. Freya also started learning to speak Persian, and in 1930 went to Persia, where she wanted to conduct archaeological and geographical studies in the Valley of the Assassins, an area that was still unexplored by Europeans. The assassins were a sect of Shiite Islam that ruled from 11th century to the 13th, and the area is named for them. With just a camp bed and a mosquito net on the back of a mule, her and her guide set out for the valleys near Alumet, a ruin of a mountain fortress near the Alumet River, an area not yet mapped. It was a difficult trip, with Freya suffering from malaria and breakbone fever, both diseases which were spread by mosquitoes, and issues from a weak heart and dysentery as well but she pressed on through all of it. 
Once she made it back to Baghdad, she received a lot of recognition from the colonial so social circles and developed a reputation as an explorer and a scholar. She went back to England, this time to work with the Royal Geographic Society and expand her knowledge on geography and cartography. She then traveled through Kurdistan, Persia, Yemen, Egypt, Iraq, and India, studying the people, their culture, the land, and making maps of the areas. Soon she was widely recognized as an expert on these countries and gave lectures at the Royal Central Asian Society and for the BBC. Then World War II broke out, and she was in the Middle East this time to be an advisor for the British colonial administration. Freya was pro-colonialism and believed that British politics served the best interests of both Britain and the indigenous people of their colonies, comparing the relationship to that of a parent-child one. Her knowledge of the Arab customs was used to influence the locals to be pro-British, and she produced radio shows in Arabic to spread this. During the last part of the war, Freya was in the court of the British Viceroy in India, where she met Gandhi and Nehru there during political discussions. She was a welcome guest at everything from excursions to parties and was a popular dance partner. She dressed extravagantly, which was always talked about. Once the war was over, she went back to a solo in Italy and worked with the British Ministry of Information to help improve relations with Italy. Despite aging, physical problems, and health issues, she continued to travel. When she was nearly 60, she learned Turkish and took trips to Asia Minor. She was also awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of Glasgow around this time, and she wrote books on Turkey, Mesopotamia during the Roman Empire, and Alexander the Great. She went to Afghanistan, Iraq, and back to Persia when she was 76, and at 86, she went to Annapurna in the Himalayas. In 1972, she was knighted and earned the title Dame Freya Stark. She lived to be over 100, spending the last few years of her life in a solo. She wrote quite a bit about her travels in both books and travelogues, and her writing collection is quite extensive. So, most of the women I covered explored in the Middle East, but if you know of more, I'd love to hear about them. Also, let me know what you think of these women I covered. Have you heard of any of them before? That's it for today, and thank you for attending this Her Story session. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Her Story Session, and be sure to click follow for more episodes.